Thanks so much, Norton. Appreciate that. Uh, yes, Friday night, September 13th, 2002, I walked into a early and medieval church history class at Denver Seminary, is what we call weekend seminary at the time. And literally, there to my right in the front row was this shining young couple, Norton and Janice Herbst. And as uh, Norton said over the years, he and I have gotten to know each other. Well, you've heard that proverb, a student is not greater than his teacher. So much for that proverb. <laughs> this morning, what I'd like to do is take us on a little journey through the book of Acts. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 4, and then we're going to go to Acts 9, and then we'll end up in Acts 15. And we're going to follow the life and the trajectory of an individual as we look at these texts. So starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, is describing the ethos of the early church here. So let me read this text, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll see what the Lord would teach you and me. Here's what Luke says. This is God's word to you and me. Let's pay close attention. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Let's pray together, and then we'll move ahead in this text. Oh Lord, I just pray this morning that you would be our vision. Lord, you are the great and awesome God who has created us and redeemed us and loves us. And Lord, you've given us so many good things. So I ask now, Lord, this morning that by your spirit, through your word, you might speak to us in the book of Acts. Thank you so much for everyone that's here and for New Denver Church and its ministry in this community and city. May you bless it and may you bless our time together now, Lord. And we ask this all in the great name of Jesus and for our sake. Amen. Well, it was probably one of the worst moments of his young life. Without question, it was the most embarrassing. With 18 seconds to go and his team down by one point to the North Carolina Tar Heels in the NCAA National Championship game, Georgetown guard Fred Brown dribbled over half court knowing he had plenty of time to get the ball in down low to one of his big men, have them score, and they'd win the national championship. He got to the top of the key, he stopped his dribble, and out of the corner of his eye, he thought he saw one of his teammates. So he quickly made a pass into the hands of James Worthy. There was one problem. Worthy was the star forward for the opposing North Carolina Tar Heels. He grabbed the ball, dribbled down court, was fouled, and the game was over. Fred Brown hung his head, and he walked off the court, realizing that he had quite literally thrown away the chance for a championship for, it, for himself, 
his teammates, and his coach, John Thompson. But what did Coach Thompson do? Did he berate Fred Brown before the media? Did he humiliate him in front of his team? Did he accuse him of stupidity? No, Coach Thompson momentarily set aside his own disappointment. He ran to center court. He embraced Fred Brown in a huge bear hug and whispered words of encouragement in his ear. You and I have experienced an enormous amount of strange and challenging things over the last three years. Pandemic, lockdowns, shutdowns, social unrest, controversy centered in the presidential election of 2020, the highest inflation we've seen in over 40 years, and for some of us, maybe the loss of a parent, a friend, maybe even a spouse. Uh, given everything that you and I have been through the, over the last three years, I suggest that it goes without saying, we all need some encouragement. Friends, encouragement is absolutely vital for life, for families, for friendships. It's vital for churches. It's absolutely essential for our own spiritual and emotional welfare. Christian writer Max Lucado tells about the time a few years ago when he was uh, doing the 13-mile run of a half triathlon. And he said that after the swim of over a mile and the 55-mile bike ride, he was really dragging. So he asked the guy running next to him how he was doing. And the guy said, this stinks. This is the stupidest thing I have ever done. And all he could do was kind of grumble and complain. So Max said he decided to move ahead a little bit. And in the process, he caught up with a 68-year-old grandmother. And she told him, you're going to finish this. Keep going. It's hot, but at least it's not raining. Just go one step at a time. Keep hydrated. Hang in there. And then she said, I've got to go. And she sped off. <laughs> he said her words pumped him up and helped him finish that race. Some people do that for us, don't they? I mean, they come alongside us and they encourage us and they fill our tanks. And when we're with them, we feel better and we want to live better because we know, we know deep down in our hearts, that's how the Lord has made us to be. Those men and women exemplify what the Lord calls us to because that's the tone he set for us in the New Testament. In fact, the word encouragement is used more than 100 times. Friends, I think that shows us that the Lord thinks it's really, really important for all of his people. Now, since encouragement is so significant, what can you and I do to make sure that we're more encouraging to all the people around us? Since encouragement brings hope and strength and life, what can you and I do to make sure that we're filling the tanks of the people around us? Well, to help answer those questions, I want us to get a little bit better acquainted this morning with a guy by the name of Joe. 
Uh, we find him first mentioned here in the book of Acts. And he stands out as a model of what an encouraging person looks like. In fact, it says that whenever Joe came around, everybody got pumped up. He ministered so much in this way that the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So what was it about his life that caused the apostles to change his name? Well, let's begin by picking up the story that we just left off in in Acts 4 by looking at the next two verses, verses 36 and 37. Luke says there, Joseph, Joe, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, as we just saw from the reading of this text, Luke is showing us that the mentality in the early church was one of enormous generosity in order to meet the needs of everybody in the community of faith. And in an attempt to make that general observation concrete, he uses Barnabas as an illustration. Clearly, Barnabas was a person of means. I mean, he, he owned some land. But because there was a need in the church, he sold the land, and then he brought the money, and he gave it to the apostles in order to meet the needs of other people in the church. Friends, he shows us the essence of an encourager. Encouragers are givers. And one of the key ways they demonstrate that is by giving generously of their resources to others. See, encouragers understand that you and I are not owners. We're only stewards. We realize that God is the owner of everything that we possess, and we're simply managers of it. And God has entrusted us with all the stuff that we have in order to leverage that to meet the needs of others. Well, Barnabas knew that. And so he freely gave in order to meet the needs of people in the church who had a legitimate need. And that's what encouragers do, friends. They see their money or their time or their talents or their energy as a means to meet the needs of other people. A number of years ago, I was in the market for a new laptop. And if you get to know me, you'll realize I'm completely technologically incompetent. And I thought, I don't know what kind of a laptop I need or what I'm going to get. But there was a guy at our church named Dave, and he worked for Microsoft. He was pretty high up in the company. And I thought, if anybody knows what I'll need, Dave would. So one day at church, I grabbed him, and I said, hey, Dave, I'm in the market for a new laptop. What would you suggest I get that will meet my needs? And he thought for a moment, and he said, Scott, for your needs, I think it would be the Dell Latitude LX. I said, great, that, that sounds good. Well, our church at the time was going through a capital campaign, and I was on staff. And if you're one of the pastors, you've got to give your money to encourage everybody else to. Well, about a month later, he comes up to me at, at church, and he says, um, did you ever get the Dell Latitude LX? And I said, no, it looks like a great laptop, but I'm a little bit tapped out financially now because of the capital campaign, so I'll save some money and maybe get it next year. So he kind of nodded and walked on. Well, three days later, I'm in my office at Denver Seminary, and it's a Wednesday, and it's about 11 o'clock, and the phone rings. And it's Dave. And he says, can you have lunch? Well, lunch is one of my spiritual gifts. So I said, you know, of course I can have lunch. So we met at this restaurant out here on East Hamden. And when I got there, he was already there in the booth. And I slid in across the booth from him. And we gave our orders to the server. And then she walked away. And after that, he slides a picture 
of the Dell Latitude LX across the table at me. Now, I got to tell you, to be honest, I thought, this is really weird. It's like giving a hungry person a picture of a hamburger. And I said, you know, I'm sure this is a great laptop. And like I said, I'll try to save my money and get it down the road. And he goes, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. He said, my wife and I bought you one. It's over at my office right now. We're loading it up with Microsoft Office. And as soon as we're done, we'll go pick it up. I said, hey, I'll buy lunch. <laughs> Friends, when we do something tangible for other people, an act of generosity, a time of hospitality, a service with our gifts. We're engaging in the ministry of encouragement. As somebody once said, and this is so true, people don't really care what you know until they know how much you care. That's the first characteristic of an encourager. The second comes to us in Acts chapter 9. Now, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, you realize that Acts chapter 9 is in many, many ways a pivotal section in the book of Acts because that's where we're told about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now, as you may know, Saul was a Pharisee who hated the Christians, and he got orders from the priests in Jerusalem to go up to Damascus and persecute the Christians there. But when he was on the way, the resurrected and glorified Christ struck him down. And following his conversion, he goes into the city of Damascus, and he begins preaching about Jesus. And because of his preaching, the Jews there plan to kill him. So with the help of those first disciples there in Damascus, he escapes, and he goes to Jerusalem. But listen to what happens to him when he gets back in the city. Verse 26, when he, that is Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Now, for just a moment, uh, let's put ourselves in the shoes of those first disciples there in Jerusalem. I think they had really, really good reason to be afraid of Saul. I mean, after all, in the prior chapter, chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Saul was destroying or ravaging the church. And the word that's used there for destroy or ravage has a really interesting picture behind it. It describes a pig who goes into a field and uproots it and ruins it for all time. Uh, Saul's purpose was to uproot and destroy the Christian church. In fact, at the very beginning of Acts 9, Luke tells us that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Christians. So I'd say they had pretty good reason for being concerned when they heard that he was back in town. But now, let's look at the situation from Saul's perspective. Oh yeah, a few months ago, he was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a crowbar against Christianity. But now he's come to know Jesus. He's repented of his sin. He's been baptized, and he's preaching the gospel with good results. People are coming to faith in Christ. But he finds himself in trouble, and he needs some support. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he can't find it anywhere. Ah, look at verse 27. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Do you see the second characteristic of an encourager? Encouragers give genuine support to those who are in need. They're the kind of people who will look beyond your reputation, beyond your past, beyond your appearance, to support you when you need it the most. One of the ministries that uh, Melanie and I have supported over the years is Alternative Pregnancy Center here in Denver. And a few years back, they sent out an advertisement for their ministry, and they included a flyer where they quoted from the journal of one of the women who had been ministered to by them. And I think her name was anonymous, but they called it Jane's Journal. Let me share this with us. She said, the abortion was not like they said it would be. It was not what I thought, that my life would be fine. That I could just go on as before and get on with my life and everything would be great. That's not what happened. I suffered from depression and I became addicted to alcohol. I had a horrible, horrible time and I didn't understand what was going on. And then through the grace of God, he healed me. I knew and saw the devastation abortion can cause in a person's life, and I wanted to be part of helping other women overcome that devastation if they've had an abortion. I wanted to help women realize that there are other pregnancy options out there, that there are other things available, that there are people who care, like Alternative Pregnancy Center. Their mission is one of helping, and they believe in the woman, and they give the woman real choices. Now, I help women just like me who found out that it didn't just go away. And together, by the grace of God, we find healing. Friends, that's what every church needs. It needs people who come alongside and say, I'm here for you in your hour of need. When you want to talk, I am there to listen. See, in the body of Christ, encouragers have really, really, really good theology. They know that nobody, not you, not me, not anyone, ever comes to Jesus with an advantage. They realize that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen way short of the glory of God. And yet they know that God gives us grace so that we, in turn, can give grace to others. Friends, in the body of Christ, the motto of encouragers is, no blame, no shame, I'm there for you to support you when you need it. You know, if you look at the book of Acts, and if Barnabas had not come right up next to Saul, all of Christian history might have been completely different. Christianity might have taken an entirely different direction, and we might not have half the New Testament that Saul, who became Paul, eventually wrote. Friends, encouragers are givers. They give generously of their resources and they give support to those who are in need. There's a third characteristic that they exemplify, and this comes to us in the second half of Acts chapter 15. The beginning of Acts 15 tells the story of the Jerusalem Council. 
And the church gathered together all of its leaders in order to make a key decision on the nature of salvation. And Paul and Barnabas were right at the heart of that. Well, after the Jerusalem council is over, Paul and Barnabas decide that they want to go back and minister to all the churches up in what was Asia, would be Turkey for them, where they had gone up there, according to Acts 13 and 14, and planted all these churches and and built up the disciples. So they wanted to go back and visit them. But they ran into a problem. Look at Acts 15, verses 37 and following. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Well, they had taken young John Mark with them on their first missionary journey, and it started off well, but when they got to the southern edge of Asia, their city of Pamphylia, something happened, and he deserts Paul and Barnabas, and he goes back home to Jerusalem. Well, now it's a few years later, and Barnabas wants to take Mark with them, but Paul says, absolutely not, because he deserted us, and he might do it again. But friends, Barnabas, Barnabas was willing to give him another shot. Look at verses 39 and 40. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. The word that Luke uses here for sharp disagreement means very intense conflict. Now, I get the impression, and maybe it's just me, but I get the impression that Barnabas didn't like conflict very much. My guess is if he lived in 2023, we would label him a conflict avoider. When conflict came up, he would much rather flee than fight. But on this occasion, he goes toe-to-toe, chest-to-chest, eyeball-to-eyeball with the great apostle Paul over the ministry of young John Mark. That's the third characteristic, friends, of an encourager. They're the kind of people who will give others a second or a third chance. They know that one failure does not mean total failure. They know that in God's economy, failures can always, always, always be redeemed. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Seabiscuit, which is about the great racehorse in the 1930s and 40s. But actually, the movie is about more than Seabiscuit. It's about the owner, Charles Howard, and the trainer, Tom Smith, and the jockey, Red Pollard. Well, on one occasion before a big race, Tom Smith's sitting in the locker room with Red Pollard, and he's coaching him on how to run Seabiscuit in this race. And he says, now, when you come into the final turn, this other horse is going to come right up next to Biscuit. And as soon as he gets right next to Biscuit, Biscuit will see him out of his eye. And that's when you give him the whip, and Biscuit will know that's when he takes off. And he says, he'll kill, kill that horse going home. Well, they run the race. And just as Tom Smith predicted, here's Biscuit and here's the horse comes right up next to him. But the horse just pulls out ahead, ahead, ahead. And all of a sudden, when the horse is out here, then Red Pollard gives Biscuit the whip, but it's way too late and he loses the race by a couple of lengths. Well, Tom Smith is furious. And after the race, he comes into the locker room 
And he says, what's wrong with you? I told you to give him the whip. And Paul says, I couldn't see him. And he says, what do you mean you couldn't see him? He says, I'm blind. He says, what do you mean you're blind? He says, I'm blind in my right eye. I couldn't see him. And Smith is just livid and smoke's coming out of his ears. And he marches out of the clubhouse and he runs into the owner, Charles Howard. Howard said, Tom, Tom, what's wrong? And he said, he lied. He lied. Do you want a jockey who lies? And at that point, Charles Howard grabs Tom Smith and he sits him down on a bench and he sits down next to him and he quotes back to Tom Smith the very first line that Smith had told him when they met. You don't throw away a whole life because it's been beat up a little bit. You know, friends, I don't know about you, but along the way, my life's been beat up a little bit. This was years and years and years ago, but uh, I went through an experience of failure and I was out of ministry. And a friend of mine, my Barnabas came along and he gave me a second chance. And I tell you the truth, I would not have the privilege of being here with all of you today if he hadn't done that. And what's really, really interesting is just a few months ago, one of my own students went through a similar failure and it was an opportunity for me to try to encourage him. You know, as you look at the life of young John Mark here in the book of Acts, it looks like that maybe, maybe in the short run, Paul might have been right. I mean, he did fail, he did desert them. But in the long run, it's crystal clear that Barnabas was right. I mean, just a few years later, Mark's ministering alongside Paul. At the end of Paul's life, he writes this letter to Timothy and he says, get Mark and bring him with you. He's useful to me in ministry. Eventually, Mark was the Christian leader who planted a church down in Africa. And because Barnabas encouraged Mark and gave him a second chance, we have Mark's biography of Jesus, the gospel of Mark. See, friends, encouragers are givers. They give freely of their resources to those who are in need. They give help to those who need support. They give others a second or a third chance when they've stumbled. And they do that because they know that in Christ, God has given them the very best he has. So how might you and I apply a message like this? What can you and I do to improve our encouragement skills in the coming weeks and months? Well, let me make some suggestions. Suggestion number one, sometime this week, write somebody or text somebody a note of encouragement. Tell them how much they mean to you or how much what they did for you meant to you. Tell them how thankful you are to the Lord for their role in your life. A couple of summers ago, Melanie and I were up in Breckenridge celebrating our anniversary and we were at this restaurant and we both had our cell phones out on the table and we were waiting for our hamburgers to be served. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, our cell phones just blew up, blew up, blew up. Well, it was the staff and the elders of our church sending us what they called a joy bomb, congratulating us on our anniversary. It was hugely, 
hugely encouraging. Suggestion number two, give a family member, maybe your spouse or maybe one of your kids or maybe a sibling or maybe a parent, an encouraging word. Maybe it's a word of forgiveness or maybe a word of support or maybe a word that encourages their second or third chance. Let them know that wherever they're at right now, you are with them and you'll help them as they need it. Speak their love language, fill their tank, and above all else, above all else, stress the positive. Suggestion number three, find somebody around you who has a need that you know that you can meet and then go and meet that need. Now, wash their car, clean their house, pay a bill for them. Take them to lunch and exercise the ministry of listening. Friends, remember, encouragers are givers. They give of their resources. They give support to those who are in need. They give others a second or a third chance. Benjamin West is a really, really famous painter. And he loves to tell the story about when he was a kid growing up, he loved to paint, but he wasn't very good. He said on one occasion, his mom had left the house, and so he was in his room, and he got out all his paints, and he started to paint this picture. And he was hoping that he would clean up the mess in his room that he had made before his mom got back. But she came back early, and she walked into the room, and he was a little bit embarrassed because the room was a mess. But she didn't say a word. She walked over, she picked up the picture that he had painted. She looked at it, set it down, and said, Benjamin, that is an absolutely beautiful painting you have made. She came over, kissed him on the forehead, and walked out of the room. West says it was with that kiss that he became a painter. You know what I think? I think every one of us in this room is trying to paint a picture of our lives that Jesus wants for us. But you know this and so do I. Sometimes it doesn't look as good as we'd like. Sometimes we even make a mess along the way. And the last thing you need and the last thing other people around us need is for somebody to come along and say, what a mess. Instead, what we need and what everybody around us needs is a kiss of encouragement. So friends, here at New Denver Church, let's be men and women who give encouragement to everybody around us at home, here at church, in the neighborhood, at work. Because encouragement is absolutely vital for our relationships, our families, the health of our churches, and I would add, the health of our society. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to you today because of your love and the encouragement you give us by your grace. And now, Lord, as we sing some more to you, may our hearts rejoice in that grace and love and encouragement that you exemplify for us day in and day out. Thank you again for this day and this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.